Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Youth sports in America is a $15 billion industry, and a lot of that money is going towards special coaching and training, as well as participation in elite travel teams. Parents spend an enormous amount of time and money on their kids' involvement in sports, hoping the investment will pay off in accolades, college scholarships, and even the chance to play professionally. And my guests today argue that all that special coaching you're spending money on probably isn't doing much to turn your kid into a superstar. Their names are Lynn Zykowski and Daniel Peterson. Lynn is one of the pioneers in the field of sports psychology and was a professor of it at Boston University for 37 years. Over the decades, he's consulted for professional and collegiate sports programs as well as Olympic teams. Daniel Peterson is a science writer who has spent his career looking at the intersection of neuroscience and athletic performance and is the co-founder and director of 80% Mental Coaching. Today on the show, Lynn and Daniel discuss whether you can spot athletic talent in a child and why a kid who looks talented at age 10 can end up being a dud athlete at 20. They explain why you shouldn't regiment your child's athletic training or specialize your kids too early in sports. Along the way, they provide best practices for parents and coaches who work with children in sports. And we then discuss how sports can boost children's cognitive abilities and why an athlete's mental game can be just as important as their speed and strength. We end our conversation talking about what kind of practice is nearly useless and what kind is the most helpful. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash playmaker. Lynn Zykowski, Daniel Peterson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for inviting us to be part of your great worldwide podcast. Well, glad. Thanks for coming on. So you guys, you two have a new book out called The Playmaker's Advantage, How to Raise Your Mental Game to the Next Level. And it's about basically the latest research in sports psychology, neuroscience, and how that how those things can separate elite athletes from the rest. But before we get into that, let's start off with some definitions. How did, how do you all define a playmaker? And is this, are playmakers seen, you know, on the, the little league level and all the way up through the pros? Well, I'll start with this. We, when we wanted, when we put this book out, we wanted to start a conversation with parents and coaches about the cognitive aspects of the game. And we knew we couldn't really like name it the cognitive advantage or the neuropsychological, uh, benefits of, of sports, we knew we had to connect it to something, a term that people had heard of. And the term that popped in our heads was playmaker, because there seems to be somewhat of a universal understanding across sports, especially team sports, that a playmaker is someone who obviously makes plays, someone who sees the field, the court, the ice a little bit better, makes quicker decisions, better decisions, 
And yes, that we do see it at all different age levels, that it's that one player who just seems to get it a lot quicker, not necessarily from a physical maturity or or even a skill component, but just someone who kind of orchestrates things out there. It's maybe the center midfielder on a soccer team. Maybe it's the quarterback or someone else on a football team, the point guard, et cetera, but not necessarily by position. I think all players can have some of these playmaking skills. And we actually, for all the interviews we did with coaches and and academics for the book, we started each interview with the question to them of what is your definition of a playmaker? And we got some very interesting responses and a few of those, I'll just share a couple of them. For example, Sidney Crosby, who was, we were very lucky to talk to, and we'll tell the story about Mike Sullivan in a little bit. But his response was, a playmaker is somebody who is able to create things, whether that's for themselves or for somebody else around them. It may just be a subtle play that ends up turning into a better play later, later on. We talked to Brad Stevens, head coach of the uh, Boston Celtics. You know, he said in basketball, I always think of it in terms of making their teammates better just by the presence on the court, the ability to create advantage for everyone else out there. And then we also saw a quote from the current manager of Manchester City soccer team in the English Premier League, Pep Guardiola, who's coached Barcelona and Bayern Munich, one of the best coaches in the world. He actually made a comment about one of his young stars, 25-year-old Belgian Kevin De Bruyne. And he was commenting on the skills of Kevin, and his quote was, he makes the right decision in the right moment every single time. And we thought that was a a great way to define the playmaker. But then what the book is about is kind of diving into the science and all the other aspects of trying to figure out what that is that those playmakers have. So um, what I think is interesting is I think oftentimes when people think about sport talent, they think of like skill, physiology, right? We had Epstein on the podcast talk about the sports gene, but you guys, your focus is on the cognitive aspect, right? It's all about seeing plays develop. Uh, and, and Lynn, I think this is interesting. Like you started studying this stuff, what, back in the late 60s, 70s? I mean, yeah. what, I mean, were that were there many people, were, what was the field like at that time of sports psychology? Were they even looking at that? No, it was barren. <laughs> there was nothing happening. And uh, but I always had that fascination wondering who these who these playmakers were, these great players. And and why did I not become one? And and so I'm thinking it had to be the coaching. And I always was intrigued with that. And finally I had a, a an Olympic champion at Boston University, David Hemry, uh, won the 400-meter hurdles in, in Mexico City and then followed up in 72 with a silver, did his di- doctoral dissertation on these great athletes and what made them champions. And, of course, we, we were really talking about champions, but we, we decided to call them playmakers rather than champions. But but that was kind of the beginning. So that that's mid-1980s where it was kind of, I'd have to say, one of the first publications on uh, examining who these people were that became the playmakers or the champions. So uh, I'd have to, I'm proud of the fact that I kind of started a lot of this inquiry, but it's really mushroomed. And you mentioned that David Epstein's great book on the sports gene, where he kind of debunked the whole idea that so much of uh, performance is around what you inherited from your parents. So it, it's, yeah, it was a barren field and it's slowly picking up, but, uh, and we're hoping with, you know, 
your your help for sure in your podcast, and that, that we can spread the word that we've got to be thinking more about this area that's been historically ignored. I'm sure there's a lot of dads listening to the show. Their kids are involved in sports uh, now. Yeah, you know, we talked before we got on the show. My kid's doing flag football this year. He's done t-ball and things like that. And you know, our approach is you know it's very casual. But there's a lot of parents who they they invest a lot in their yeah. kids, right? And because they want them to be successful, they're they're hoping they get college scholarships. Maybe they'll go pro. And we've probably all seen those you know, specials on the news about parents sending off their kids to these really intense training camps when they're 10 or 11. And because, because I think people, there's an idea out there that if you want to be great, you have to start young. Cause there's the story of Tiger Woods, right? He was golfing when he was three or Wayne Gretzky. Um, but what's the research say? Does, can, can you spot playmakers that early? And can you, can you really train it? Like, like we think we can, if you send your kid to an, an extensive soccer camp, is that going to help them become a playmaker? Well, the answer, let me start with that, is, is definitive no. That is, it's that uh, like Yogi Berra, the great philosopher, I chuckle at him. He always said, like, prediction is difficult, particularly for the future. And uh, it's the with the, the, all the pro leagues and the colleges have all failed miserably in trying to predict talent from a, at a young age. And it's, it really bothers me when I hear colleges offering scholarships to to young athletes who, who might be 13, 14 years of age, and they're five or six years from entering college. And it's just so unpredictive. But uh, they, they, they keep trying to make those kinds of predictions that based upon that early talent that they're going to get there. And and then that kind of ties in also to the, the whole era of, of specialization, that you've got to start early. And the entrepreneurs, of course, that's how they make their money, uh, having parents invest big money in in kids coming to camp or hiring a team of specialists. And I'm re- when I talk about that, I'm reminded of the great story that probably many of our listeners uh, will not have heard of, but there was the athlete football player at USC, Todd Marinovich. I think he was drafted about 1991, number in the first round by, by Oakland. Just absolutely fizzled. And his father had this, he was a, he was a football coach, who had the idea that I'll get – uh, he wanted to train him to be a quarterback. I'll get all these specialists from the mechanical people, the technical people, the nutrition people, the strength and conditioning, and all these experts, and just had him so regimented. And he he had a very modest career in, at, at, at USC and then failed miserably in the pros and then got into drugs and alcohol. But he was so regimented. And, and even though the father had great intentions, it really backfired on them. That may be the most, you know, horrific story that, I, that I've heard of in, in in sport, where you know parental beliefs uh, really kind of backfired on them. And, and Dan, can you highlight? I mean, I mean, so if specialization doesn't work, I mean, when you guys looked through the research, what did most of these playmakers we think of today, like Tom Brady, mm-hmm. basketball players, like did they specialize in their sport at an early age, or were they doing all sorts of different stuff? No, they. The common theme that we heard throughout all of those, and in fact, we we have quotes in the book from from Brad Stevens, Mike Sullivan, the coach of the Penguins, et cetera, saying the ones that they look for and the the players who are at that elite levels, most of them, now we're going back, you know, 10 years or so now, uh, they played multiple sports growing up. And what's interesting is we did look at a lot of the research and there was one study in particular that really stuck out 
Dr. Arnie Gulick, who is the head of the Department of Sports Science at uh, Kaiserslautern University in Germany, he did a very elongated study of the soccer young soccer athletes who went into the elite German soccer academies. And you can imagine that's pretty elite because you know soccer is everything in Germany. So some of these kids coming in at age eight, age 10 to these, basically you move away from home and go to these elite academies. And he uh, gave a presentation at the 2016 Youth Athlete Development Conference in Singapore. And he just dropped a bomb on everybody. And his, his uh, opening remark was, future top athletes cannot be predicted reliably by way of young age talent identification. Particularly early talent development programming is neither necessary nor beneficial, but correlates negatively with long-term senior success. And what he did was he, he looked and tracked all of these players over time, and he saw that, in fact, another quote here, their success at the age of 10 had zero correlation with their success as a senior. So in other words, he followed them through the years to see if they ended up on elite teams, if they ended up with the German national team, et cetera. And he said, no, that those who were better at a young age were not those who were better at an older age. And of those who were recruited at an age of U11 or U13, by the time they were 19, only 9% of those kids were still in the program. They had all dropped out by then. On the other hand, those who made it to the national A-team of Germany, those we see in the World Cup, were being built upon gradually across age stages. And so what they found was these kids who made it, who were some of the top German stars today, uh, played multiple sports probably up till about the age of of high school, you know, age 14, 15. Then they turned their attention and specialized in a sport uh, through the high school ages. But from age six, from age eight, the age of your son up till high school, it was try to get them in as many sports as possible. And there's also a, a physical component and a burnout component as well. Lots of studies from orthopedic surgeons, et cetera, and we've seen this a lot in baseball with kids, you know, having surgeries on their elbows in their early teens, that the recommendation from the medical doctors, as well as the, the cognitive scientists, is to play one sport per season, play a different sport every season, and then take some time off, as hard as that is for parents to do with their kids. You know, and some of the research also shows that as long as they play complementary sports, that have a similar flow to them. So in team sports, if your son or daughter were to play soccer in the fall, basketball or hockey in the winter, and maybe lacrosse in the spring, and then maybe take June or July off, but those three those sports are all invasion-based, as we call them. They all have similar concepts of offense, defense, passing, shooting, dribbling, moving the, the ball or puck down the field. And so those cognitive skills cross over between the sports and uh, reinforce each other, but yet they're using different physical muscles. Um, they're playing a different sport with different teammates, so they don't have the mental burnout of playing 12 months a year of soccer, 12 months a year of basketball. And so that's, um, I think that's, you're going to hear more and more of that. It's, it's tough for parents to come up against that because Kind of the for-profit coaching machine tells them to, oh, you, your your son or daughter has to be playing this sport 10, 12 months a year if you want to get them anywhere. 
and that's just that's just simply not true. And there's a lot of social pressure too, right? Because like you're, absolutely, because your kid sees all the other kids doing it, and like, well, I got to do that too. Yeah, I guess I could if I could add something here, uh, Brett. The the message, uh, take home message for parents would be when when your children are young and interested in getting into sport and they're they're seeing it on television, hearing it, their friends are playing, have them sample them. We call it sampling. Jean Coté and others uh, in Canada study this extensively and they call develop these different periods of what kids should be doing in, in, in terms of talent development. But those years when they get interested in sport, it may be four or five years of age, six, have them sample a variety of sports and, and let the, the youngster decide what they seem to be best at and what they what they have a passion for and as parents we tend to socialize our kids into sports that we played and, and we have a passion for in life and think that our kids are going to be uh, going to like it and and be good at it but that just isn't correct so get try, have them experience a whole variety of different sports i know it's expensive but that way they they'll get a better sense of what that youngster has a passion for and could really be good at so give them a try. Right. So let them sample. I mean, another thing you, you talk about too is, and you mentioned earlier, is that like sports today, youth sports particularly, is very regimented from an early age where, you know, when I was a kid, I had neighbor kids that we'd play pickup baseball, or we'd play pickle, or we'd play football. Yeah. And like we would, so I mean, what's going on cognitively in a child's brain when they do, when they're playing a sport, but it's not, it's not adult supervised. Is, is there something like something, something different that happens compared to say a regimented practice? Well, for one thing, uh, Red, is that they're making decisions for themselves. There's no parent or coach telling them what to do. That's the great tragedy that we have now is that we've lost all that, and youngsters are being told what to do at a very young age, uh, and they they find themselves incapable of making decisions for themselves on the field. So that was the great thing of, of Sandlot uh, baseball or pond hockey or pickup games and soccer. Kids you know, made their own decisions, made made up some of their own rules just so that they could advance the play. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of good things that we've lost by with organized sport. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's interesting. I remember, like, you, you see these parents in America, you know, spending lots of money sending their kids to, like, these really extent, intensive baseball camps. And yet, a lot of the great players come from these Caribbean countries yes. where they, they used a, a paper bag for a glove. <laughs> great point. Great right? point. Yes. So, okay. Well, okay. You don't want to specialize early. Uh, what's the best way, you know, for those who are parents of athletes or coaches who are coaching young people, like, what's the best way to coach kids? Because I remember when I, uh, I, I was the volunteer <laughs> dad to be the coach for T-ball last year. And I remember getting there and so I had, like, baseball is a really complicated sport. It's very abstract, right? But then there's like a, the skill is really hard, like throwing a ball really hard, hitting a, a ball off a tee. It's like a, a small object, hard. But then there's these rules. I remember one day when we finally, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach them the difference between a forced out and like a, a tag out. And <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, it didn't happen. <laughs> and, and so at that point, I was like, you know, I just realized, you know what, I'm just going to let them have fun. Sure. Um, so like, You'll figure it out. Yeah. So like, what, what is the best approach for coaching, like, you know, ages, you know, five to 10? Any insights there from the research? I'd say I'd start with, we talked with another one of Len's longtime uh, colleagues um, and at the University of New Jersey and uh, uh, Professor Feigenbaum. And he 
has has spent his whole career advocating for what what he calls the technical term physical literacy. But what he argues is that so many kids today jump right into sports and that that are coached by parents, well-meaning. I was one of them. Uh, but it, they go way off the deep end as far as teaching them all the minor tactics and tricks and rules and things that they just aren't ready to handle. And what uh, Professor Feigenbaum says is, first, they have to learn to run and jump and you know spin around and learn all of those physical athletic skills. And he said, that's what used to come, like you said, from just playing outside with your friends, playing tag, climbing trees, et cetera. And what he sees when he works with a lot of PE educators in schools is a lot of these kids don't even know how to do those some of those things. They're not good at some of those basic physical skills. And they also don't have the physical development or the strength uh, because a lot of that time has been restricted in school and they don't do as much of it after school, et cetera. And so we put in the book some, some ideas of just that's a place to start is just out there not teaching them a complicated sport, but just setting up some basic rules. And like you said, play, play catch, uh, uh, play hot box, you know, between two bases, things like that. And then going on from there, I think the, um, a lot of the literature would say you're really trying to build up a lot of pattern recognition, being able to see their sport in a lot of different situations and so the old adage of practice like you play, instead of breaking down a practice session into drills of going around cones and stuff, you know, set up some small-sided games. Uh, you know, football's an easy one. Play four-on-three tag football or flag football like you're doing and just let them experience it and make decisions about where to cut and when to run and how to avoid people and things like that before you try to teach them offsides and everything like that. But Len, what do you think? Yeah, if I could add to that, that that's, that's, that's an important concept you brought up here, Brett. And one of the things you can't be afraid of is just to, to uh, coaches to modify the rules a little bit. And you see it so much in, in youth sport where I've had arguments with parents and administrators uh, over things like teaching youngsters baseball at eight, nine years of age. And they're, they're, they're afraid of that hard baseball. So when somebody developed this little uh, the ball, the same size or perhaps a little bit smaller, but but didn't have that hardness that a baseball has that made kids afraid when they get hit by the ball. And they said, no, you can't. That, that That's not baseball. They've got to be banged with that real hard baseball to, to learn the sport. So they they really objected to the to the uh, to the modification of the ball itself or using uh, having a smaller basketball, for example, or a smaller soccer ball when they're first starting out, or the, the height of the hoop in basketball. They were just, no, you, you, you've got to keep it, to what it at what level the, the adults are playing it at. And, and that's absolutely insane. So having a smaller ball, lower hoop, and now we can teach them the mechanics of, of making a, a good free throw or a jump shot if we make those modifications. And as Dan was saying, having them work in tight areas where they get to touch uh, the ball more frequently in, in a soccer pitch or on a nice hockey rink, we did a lot of cross, cross-ice stuff. It not only gives them more touches, but it forces them to think quicker. they got to make quicker decisions because a defender is on them all the time. And I think as a, another thing that's important to kind of get at this cognitive dimension, Brett, is that that as coaches, we're often telling kids what to do. 
and his parents were telling him what to do. We, we really lost the art of asking good questions. So when you ask questions, kids have to think. So when you're asking them, well, why would you do this? Uh, what's a good way to, to do this? It gets you know, the wheels turning in the, in the, in the young brain of, of a little athlete. And so that's one way of kind of enhancing the, the cognitive development of kids in sport. Brett, I'm just going to bring up one quote that we have in the book we, um, from a Dr. Istvan Bali, who is a world expert in developing these player development plans that you see from a lot of the national sport organizations. He's done USA Hockey's, U.S. Lacrosse's, he's worked with Olympic committees, etc. To kind of understand this idea of physical literacy and building sports skill over time, not all at once. And the quote that he always likes to use in his presentations is, uh, and this is Dr. Bali. I learned this from Jesuit priests in Ireland. If you want to teach Latin to Johnny, you have to know Latin, and obviously you have to know Johnny. So instead of Latin, if you want to teach any sport to Johnny, you have to know that sport, which we do obviously very well, and you have to know Johnny. We know the sport very well, but we do not know Johnny or Jane from age 6 to 16. And he goes on to talk about you can't just impose an adult training program on little kids. You need to adjust it uh, down to their cognitive level. Uh, one really great brass tack piece of advice that I got from that was the, the research about working memory in kids and when mm-hmm. you're instructing them. Because you know, as a parent, you know, I, I'm watching my kid play and I'm like shouting instructions at him, <laughs> yeah. right? And you think it's helpful. But like when you guys talked about like, no, a kid's working memory is not very developed. The prefrontal cortex is not very developed. So when you're just barking these instructions, like they're trying to main, like, contain all that information that you're sending them while also trying to process what's going on in the, the sport, the, the game itself. And it just shut, like it just shuts down and they don't do well. So like basically the tip was like, just shut up yeah. <laughs> and yeah. let your kid play. And it's interesting because uh, it just to, to go a little bit deep in some of the, uh, the, the cognitive part of that, one of the, a few of the scientists that we quote in the book really do not get do their work in sports. But a very well-known one is Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize. And Kahneman came out with the book Thinking Fast and Slow several years ago. And he introduced the whole topic of how we may, how humans make decisions with system one and system two. System one is you're you're thinking fast, you know, two plus two is four. You don't have to really think about it. If a ball's flying at your head, like Len said, you're going to duck, or you will the second time. And so those are the system one things. Those are the automatic things. And in a sports world, that's when you have mastered a skill. That's when you can dribble a basketball without looking at the basketball, or you can uh, stick handle a puck without watching the puck. And the system two is the more deliberate analytical side where you actually have to stop and think to figure something out. And it's as obviously, when you're learning to do a new skill, you're stopping to look at your hand as you're dribbling the basketball until you until you can figure it out for sure. It's the same way, like you said, on a on a field or on a court. In, among all that chaos, what we want is we want system one happening. We want automaticity. We want kids who see something, see an opportunity, see an opening, see a pass, and they just do it instinctively, intuitively. And that comes from years and years of pattern recognition of seeing opportunities, oh, tried that once and it didn't work. And slowly, subconsciously, that database of ideas and patterns build up until the point where it just looks automatic. And they always talk about the game slowing down at a higher level. 
that's the process. It's going from system two to system one where they can just react the way they should. But like you said, when a when a parent, a well-meaning parent, I've been there, I know, you know, yells, no, pass over there to Fred. You know, your son or daughter already had an idea in their head of what they were going to do. And now you've just introduced a whole nother decision there and they slow down and they lose the ball and, or they make a bad pass. Or when a coach yells the play-by-play from the sideline of exactly every pass they should make, it just, it disrupts that automaticity and learning process. So like you said, the best thing to do is cheer positively and, and don't give them specific instructions. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. So let's, let's recap here for coaching young kids or parenting young kids who are athletes. Don't want to specialize early. Let them play lots of different sports. Don't make the practices too regimented, like, but make them more like gameplay. So maybe do little mini games within practice so they can recognize those patterns and get that, get those, or practice those skills that underlie the game. Would that be a good summary? Sure. Yeah. And and ask questions a lot. Don't always be telling, even though it's a more efficient way of, of running a practice, but talk to the kids and ask them questions, challenge them mentally. Well, you see, that's a great question. I always wonder like, how do I, if I'm watching my kid do something and I see something that, he, okay, maybe he should, he should have done something differently. Like, do you bring that up right after, like in the car ride home? Like, do you ask a question? Like, what, what were you thinking in this? I mean, cause like, you don't want to ask it in a way like, what were you thinking you, you idiot? Like, <laughs> so like, I mean, so like what, what kind of advice there? Like, how do you have that conversation with your kids so they can uh, develop more cognitively for their sport? Well, I, I, it's heightening that awareness. I think picking your spots and when to do it, it may not be on the car car ride home, wait for a while, depending upon whether it's a success or failure uh, attempt. But it's it's asking those questions of your children as a parent or as a coach, uh, I think is really healthy, you know, without kind of coming across as, uh, you know, it's really an inquisition, but rather how how are they seeing the field and the pitch or the court? They might be seeing it very differently when they're on there than you as a parent or a coach on the sideline because they're getting a different angle. So it's it's always good to hear them, and, but re- kind of do it with a little bit of humor too and, and encouraging them to, to talk it through and ask why they make these decisions. And, you know, Brett, I always, when my, my guys were little, we had a hockey coach who's a great guy. And he told us parents on the first day of the season, he said, abide by the the parking lot rule. And we're like, what's the parking lot rule? And he said, after a game, you start up your car, your kid's in the car, 
you're heading out of the parking lot. When, by the time you get out of the parking lot, stop talking about the game. You know, that's it. You know, it just good game, bad game, maybe one question, but once you leave the parking lot, it's done and, and don't dwell on it. And I thought that was always useful. At least it was, <laughs> I guess that doesn't mean you can sit in the parking lot and yell at them for a half hour. <laughs> but basically, you know, you get, you get about 30 seconds or a minute to talk about the game and then it's over. Let it go. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of parents worry that they don't do the regimen stuff. They're not going to pick up the game, but like the kids are picking this stuff up. You just have to give them opportunities. For I guess sure. that's, I think that's reassuring. So uh, at what point can kids start specializing? Is it different? I imagine, I mean, maybe it's different for every kid. Well, it's different for every kid and maybe by sport. You'll see the specialization in something like gymnastics where they start awfully young. Swimming to some extent has that as well where they start young. And it, I, I think there's a belief system that they that that is fairly important that they start young. But most of the other sports, no. Sample different ones. And I remember Sidney Crosby telling me in my long interview with him that he said he played every conceivable sport he could as a kid. And he didn't specialize in, in hockey until he was around 14 or 15. But he said there were so many transferable skills that he learned and, and he said, even cognitively, like the, the different patterns of play, you learn something from every sport that you can transfer. And he says, you just won't get that by playing one sport and exposed to different coaches as well, who give you different ideas on how to process information. Yeah, so that, that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, and I think from the, some of the research has said, based on what, you know, where some of the elite uh, athletes have come from, a lot of them didn't start until about that high school age, about 14 or 15 years old. Did they really kind of get rid of the other sports in their life and, and pick one? And it certainly, like you said, every, every child's difference, some may never get rid of them. You know, the, the, the three letter athlete in high school has become more and more rare, but they're still out there and there's no reason you have to quit the other sports. I know there's all this, you know, I've, I've lived through it, the whole quest for the college scholarship and all of that. A couple of my guys did that. And, but it's, it, it's a conversation with them at that age of, Hey, if you really want to go for it from high school and beyond, here's probably some things we need to do, but you don't have to, you can keep playing all of your sports if you want. And then they make the decision. I think the data are pretty clear too, that specialization is, is much earlier today than it was when David Henry did his study in the mid-1980s. I think it was the, the, of the 50-some athletes he interviewed, they, they, they were specializing at about age 15. You know, my, I don't know what they are, uh, the exact number would be today, but I'll, I suspect it's much younger than 15 years of age to specialize in the sports that they're playing. Yeah, I mean, you, you see very few, even in college, like, multi-sport players. I think OU has one, right? I know the quarterback for OU. Oh, yeah. He's good. Good baseball yeah, baseball player. Baseball player. Football, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but no, they're not a lot of Deion Sanders anymore. Right. Bo Jackson's, Jim Thorpe's. Right. But but part of that, I think, Brett, is, is you know, as parents, you know, we think we're, we've got to do the right thing. And and there there are good entrepreneurs out there that are salespeople. And they say, there's only one way to get to the top. you got to stick with me. And they've got to play 12 months a year and we'll start early. And they buy into that. They think more, more is better. And yet, you know, but these people aren't reading journal articles or the sports science information. So... How would they know? They're hoping that they're making the right decision. And intuitively, it might make sense to them. But it's it, the research just does not support that. 
So we've been talking about so far how the brain works, the child's brain works when they're learning a sport and the best way to approach that when they're young. And we want to specialize later on, maybe when they're in high school. But you also hit on research saying how how sports can affect cognition and that cognition carry over to other parts of our life. Because oftentimes we think of sport, it's very like domain specific, but there's research showing that, you know, when you play sports, you work parts of your brain that can help you in decision-making and say, you know, just school, work, et cetera. Yeah. One of the interesting studies that we looked at was from the University of Illinois, Dr. Beckman and who's Dr. Hillman at University of Illinois. Chuck Hillman, yeah. Yeah. They did uh, some very interesting studies uh, probably about five or six years ago where they had they have a, a facility there that they call the cave. It's basically almost a 180-degree surround screen where they can flash movies and images of environments up there and then test certain things as you react to them. And one of the things they had in there was a, a scene of a busy street and your job was to cross the virtual street without getting hit by the cars. And so they brought in University of Illinois student athletes and they brought in some recreational athletes and then they brought in some athletes who didn't play a lot of sports and they tested them as far as their ability to know when to cross the street virtually. In other words, timing things, you know, there's cars coming both ways and all of that. And then they did so. And well, the first thing they found is that, yes, indeed, elite athletes got across the street <laughs> better than, than the uh, recreational athletes or the non-athletes. But then they also threw in some things like distractions, as most students are distracted. They'll, they'll have a phone ringing. They'll have, a, they'll have them look at a phone while they try to cross the street, et cetera. And there again, that for what they found is that the elite athletes had better awareness peripheral vision, et cetera, and they were able to get across safer. But it still didn't answer the question. And they they admit that this they haven't asked the question whether it's nature or nurture. You know, are they are these elite athletes better at this because they played sports and that trained their cognitive abilities? Or are they elite athletes because they were born with better cognitive abilities? A lot like the the David Epstein discussion that he's brought up of of is it is it genetic or is it uh, is it training? And that goes into the whole ten thousand hour discussion, et cetera, which we'll get to. But and they have also found that they've tested athletes who can show better vision results and other things, but usually they only show better uh, vision perception, et cetera, when they're in a sports context. So if you show a bunch of elite soccer players a soccer situation and and stop something and have them think about working memory or whatever, they find that in a soccer setting, they do much better than people who are not soccer players. But in a non-sports specific context, they don't. They're, they're not that much better. They don't have that many more cognitive gifts than, uh, than the general population. So still a lot of interesting research to do out there, but um, a few hints here and there. Yeah, let me let me add a little bit to what Dan said, Brett. There are a couple of studies that I'm quite familiar with. Uh, my my colleague at the University of Montreal, Jocelyn Faubert, developed a, a, a device called uh, the NeuroTracker, which is really m- multiple object tracking. So it, it takes incredible cognitive skills, particularly attention skills, and and executive function processing skills, to to do well on the task. And this is published in in prestigious journals, Nature and in Science, and basically has demonstrated that 
that elite athletes outperform other people on that. But again, we don't know. Is that something that they were they were gifted with? I tend to think it is something that that help, sport helped them develop. Yeah, they may have had high baselines to start with, but sports certainly contribute to that. And then we cite in our, in the book also a famous Danish study looking at executive functions of high-end soccer players. And lo and behold, they used a couple of Spanish players that I worked with in 2006 and, and eight. Iniesta was one of them. I think Ramos was the other. And they Xavi. were... Yeah, yeah, Xavi was Xavi. That's right. Who They were just off the charts on executive functioning, a standard psychological test they used for looking at executive functioning abilities. And they were, they were just nobody close to that. Here again, did they... Did they come into the world with those those great abilities, or did the, the kind of football they played help develop it? And I'm leaning towards the latter for sure. Okay, yeah, because I, mean, I know there's a lot of uh, discussion too now about the role of physical education or sports in schools. When there's all this pressure now for you know kids to do well on tests, so a lot of schools are dropping PE yeah. or they're dropping sports. And you think, well, what are what are they missing out? I mean, is that is that going to affect how well they actually do on these tests because they're not exercising their their brain in that way? Exactly right. You hit that right on. And, and my my good uh, former student and colleague, Avery Fagenbaum in, in New Jersey, he's kind of the world's advocate on that. He said, and, and I think there are a lot of pretty bright people who would support that. We've got to have that that exercise dimension to, to enhance brain function. It's just that, uh, you know, the Policymakers uh, believe there's you just got to have more reading, writing and arithmetic and uh, the world's problems will be solved. Not true. So, I mean, so far we've been talking about, um, this is very, like, very recreational. I think sports are, I mean, for me, sports are important for kids because you, you make a lot of memories, uh, you make friends, you get to exercise, you get to work your brain a different way. So I think for most parents who are listening, like, this is going to be useful advice. Their kid will play sports through high school and they'll have a good time. But like, what about, like, is, I mean, we talked about earlier, can you recognize if a kid, like they say they're a senior in high school like, okay, he has a chance to do well in college. Is that even, I mean, is that possible? Like, can you see, like, you can see the playmaker ability there or like, even if he gets to college, can you like, well, Matt, maybe he has a chance to go pro. Is that possible? Can you, are there things we can look for that will determine performance like later on in their athletic development? I'm not talking when they're 10, I'm talking when they're 18, 17 years old. Well, let me just kind of comment on that, Brett, is that up until now, (laughs) in every major sport that I've worked in, the, the, the drafts uh, are, are very poor at predicting those who are going to make it. And they keep repeating the same mistakes because they basically look at the attributes that they can easily measure. So it's easy to measure athlete speed, athlete strength, you know, their, their, their motion, their biomechanics. And they, they try to create an equation that's going to predict whether they're going to be successful as a collegiate player or a pro player, men and women. And, and the prediction rate has been terrible. And, 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 and so why? And, and my opinion is that the area that they're missing may be the most important one in the equation. It's not part of the equation. And that's the, the, these perceptual cognitive abilities of, of that individual. And because we haven't been able to measure it up until now, it's not part of the equation and, and it kind of makes the 
the the prediction terrible as it's been. So I'm I'm predict I'm making this prediction that in the future it's going to get a lot better because now we're at, at that point uh, scientifically where we can measure these perceptual cognitive abilities, and we cite that in the book. Uh, and I keep talking about it where there's really good things happening in the world of sport and sports science where we're able to measure these perceptual abilities, cognitive abilities, and I think that's going to enhance the predictive. Uh, ability of uh, uh, talent scouts. So what are, so what are they doing to, to test for the, that cognitive aspect of the sport? Or are they starting to? Well, uh, let me briefly mention a couple of them. The, the first thing we talk about in, in uh, part two of the book is being able to, uh, to read, read the play. So it's, it's a kind of perceptual skills. And most of it's with, with vision, of course. But certainly we rely on some of our other senses too. But vision is the, the primary one. What are we seeing out there? And uh, uh, there is a, a company called uh, Right Eye, R-I-G-H-T-E-Y, Right Eye, that in 10 minutes gets you all the valuable visual metrics that are important for basically every sport. It's more than just doing acuity tests with an optometrist. It captures these wonderful metrics that's getting a lot of traction in the world of sport in the last couple of years. I'm very familiar with that, that company and how they're doing it. And I think that's adding, adding to our predictability by measuring these perceptual skills. Then the decision-making part, you may know from the knowing the football world a bit, they, they've used the, this Wonderlick test, which was kind of a, a 1930s uh, primitive IQ test. And they, uh, I think the Dallas Cowboys introduced it uh, to see if they could identify smart quarterbacks way back when. And and they continue to use the Wonderlick. And every year they talk about how somebody scored on the Wonderlick, even though it's supposed to be confidential. But it's a, it's a terrible predictor or measure measurement tool for cognitive abilities. And so uh, my, my good friend Scott Goldman uh, uh, started a project that when he was at the uh, University of Arizona and then when he moved to Michigan kind of fine-tuned it, and he's developed something called the AIQ, or the Athlete Intelligent Quotient. And it basically looks at important executive functions, the kinds of intelligence markers that you need, basically executive function skills, to be a good athlete. And that's getting a lot of traction in the high-performance world, and I think it's it's only going to alert most of the sporting community that we've got a way now of measuring those executive functions that work on the free prefrontal cortex, and so forth. So now that we can we can insert into the equation the perceptual dimension and the decision-making dimension, I think it's going to do great things for the predictability of, of athletes at the college level and at the professional level. You know, Brett, another, just to add on to what Len said, in high school football, we have a section, I think it's chapter two, called, you know, what gets measured gets noticed. And one of the things they have every year for the elite high school football players is Nike sponsors it called the opening and it's regional competitions across the country. I believe there's six of them. And then if you do well at the regional competition, you get invited to the national competition. And these are high school uh, football players looking to move on to college or get recruited for college. And one of the things that we noticed and we looked at a lot of the numbers, et cetera, and the conversation about it was you know, the national recruiting services will rate a player three-star, four-star, five-star. And then they go to these combines, basically. They do run some football-specific plays, et cetera, and look at them that way. 
But one of the things they do is they put them through these physical tests, uh, the Nike Spark test for speed, power, reaction time, agility, and quickness. And these are all measures of their of their athleticism. And what's interesting is what we found is that at, a, at the regional, at the national level, the players who were five-star recruits as ranked by national scouts did not were not always the ones who scored at the highest levels within their position group in the physical test, the athletic tests, and vice versa. The guys who scored really well on the spark test were maybe three-star recruits. And so from that, we kind of, you know, all right, well then what's the what's the X factor then? Why are why are these guys ranked five stars when they're not even the best athletes within their position group? Certainly they're elite athletes among the rest of us. But within their position group and within their peers, physically, they're not as gifted as the others, yet they're ranked higher. And that's where we started thinking, well, it, that's where we need to start measuring or find a way to measure the cognitive end. And in fact, we were so interested in that and in exactly your question, how do we measure this decision-making component? I think that's become, uh, Len and I have decided that's the topic of our next book, in 2019 is to look specifically at decision-making in sports and dive deep into that and all of the interesting science and interesting anecdotes about good decisions, bad decisions, winning games, losing games. Uh, How do you coach decisions? How do you measure decisions and all of those things? So there's a lot of work still left to be done there. No, for sure. Um, And one of you mentioned the 10,000 hour rule in in practice, because we've had Anders Ericsson on the podcast to discuss this. And, and I, th- I thought one of the really in, kind of counterintuitive findings you, you have in the book is that at an elite level, it seems like more practice doesn't help. Like you, you got, you give the example of uh, Kyle Ivory. No, the basketball player just decided he wasn't going to practice anymore. Oh, Ellen oh, Iverson. Yeah. Ellen Iverson. <laughs> right. His famous um, rant. <laughs> right. His famous rant against practice. I mean, so I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, it doesn't seem to help that much at a certain point. What, what's going on there? Well, I think in Iverson's case, it was, you know, his practice days were when he was in college. So when he's like a in the NBA for 12 years, skipping a practice isn't going to significantly affect Allen Iverson. And I think that's what he would, when he raised all that, that ire is, why is practice important? Well, you know, he's, his, his skill set was all automated by that time, you know, Getting an extra 15 minutes in wasn't going to make much difference for Allen Iverson, but for a developing athlete, it's hugely important. And 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 it's got to be like, and I'm sure you learned that from uh, Andrew Erickson that it, it's got to be deliberate practice. We had a great interview with him, and I've I've known Anders for many years. That it, he just doesn't see much of this what he called deliberate practice, or what I referred more purposeful practice, where you're actually trying to accomplish something, not just going through routine stuff at any level, whether it's at the, the youth level or collegiate level or at the pros. You have to be trying to get better with each and every practice on certain subskills. And I think he probably clarified and summarized better than I could, you know, the, the whole conversation about 10,000 hour theory and, and even, you know, Malcolm Gladwell in his outliers book, he didn't really even mess it up that bad. I mean, he was just, he took this before that it was somewhat of an obscure piece of research by Dr. Erickson among people outside of his field. And, and it was on musicians. It wasn't even on athletes. And, but 
and Malcolm will say this as well, and we we have some of his quotes in the book that, you know, he didn't play up. He, he called it the 10,000-hour rule. But other than that, it just kind of one of those things that kind of took off on its own that poor people heard 10,000 hours is what you need to be world-class. And that's the thing that stuck. Whereas Gladwell and Erickson will say, that's not the thing that we wanted to stick. <laughs> what we wanted to stick was the idea of deliberate practice, as Len said, where you're focusing on something specific, preferably a weakness. You have a coach there to guide you. It's uncomfortable. You don't like doing it. But over time, you will get better at these things. And that goes back to our discussion about automaticity. You're moving from system two to system one with all of that practice. If you just go out in the driveway and shoot baskets for an hour casually, okay, you can chalk that up as an hour of practice, but you really didn't improve anything. One of the quotes that uh, Anders gave us during our interview is he's saying, I'm basically arguing that when you look at a lot of the practice that I've seen visiting all sorts of different teams, very little of that is actually even getting close to this idea of individualized deliberate practice where somebody's doing something that is uniquely appropriate for them to improve some aspects of their performance in some individualized context. So that's kind of his mission, and, and maybe he said something similar when he talked to you, but that's his mission is to push the deliberate practice part, not the quantity. Right. So I imagine like you wouldn't want to do this deliberate practice on young kids with the skills, like just have them, you know, throw balls over and over and over again and like be, make it ready. You just want them to play. But I imagine as you get, you decide to specialize, you're going to start spending more time refining skills. That's when a coach come in. And I imagine at an elite level, like the practice that you're doing is not so much the, the physical skill of it, but it's like the, the mental part, like the film, like if you're a football player, it's like, you're spending a lot of time watching film, analyzing things, how you could have done things better, you know, increasing that pattern recognition in your brain. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, guys, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Well, it's available just about anywhere. It should be in your local bookstores. It's obviously on Amazon and all the online booksellers. It's called The Playmaker's Advantage. It is, uh, in our website, is 80percentmental.com, 80percentmental.com. And people can also follow me on Twitter at Daniel Peterson, all one word. And like I said, it, it's uh, we've, we've had it out there since June, uh, getting a lot of good feedback it's available in hardcover, audio version, or ebook, and then there's a paperback coming out in January. Well, Lynn Zykowski, Daniel Peterson, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Well, well, thanks, pleasure. Brett. Thanks for having us on, Brett. My guests today were Lynn Zykowski and Daniel Peterson. They are the authors of the book, The Playmaker's Advantage. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about their work at 80percentmental.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash playmaker, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.